I hope you had a blessed Thanksgiving day and time with your family. I'm not sure what your family dynamics were that you dealt with, or if there were any moments of tension or awkwardness that sometimes can happen in some families. But I will tell you this. The passage that Bill just read, this passage, if it is understood and applied, will address all family problems, all church problems, all marriage problems, all broken friendship problems. I won't promise that it will heal or reconcile those problems, but it will radically change things because it will radically change you. Now, I'm, I'm hoping, and I kind of think, that as we open this particular passage, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, as we open this particular passage today, I know you. And it, there's huge, there are huge ways in which I know I'm preaching to the choir because I know you serve. Uh, I have watched your generosity over the decades. Uh, but what we study today should always be before us as our normal, as what is ordinary for us, not extraordinary. I have a friend uh, in ministry, his name is Van Campbell. I haven't, I've lost touch with Van. I was trying to find, <clears throat> find him this past uh, week to uh, remind myself of the details. Uh, the details I do have of the story, I, I remember clearly as he told them to me. He was pastoring a Baptist church in another state, and they had a visitation program. They were given the names of a non-Christian family in their area, in the neighborhood, and they knocked on the door. And the wife answered. The husband was laying on the couch, and when the husband found out where they were from, he became furious and cursed them out and accused them of trying to add his family's name to their list of converts to check them off. He said he had terminal cancer, medical bills wiped out all their savings, and as far as he was concerned, the Christians that he knew were only interested in trying to save him. They didn't care what happened to him or to his family, and he demanded that they leave. Uh, long story short, the folks in Van's church learned what those needs were, and uh, two weeks later, Van and one of his deacons went back. The man was much worse, and when they were admitted by the wife, he just radiated bitterness. Van said, before you ask us to leave, we want to let you know that if you approve, we have set things up for these bills to be paid off, and he mentioned the specific ones. He then said, one of the men of our church owns an apartment complex, and uh, your wife can live there as manager, rent-free, with a small salary, and be with the children there. Your family will be taken care of. We would just want to put your mind at ease. The man just broke down and sobbed. If I remember the story right, he never did become a Christian. He died about a month later. But the family came to the church. And they all did become followers of Jesus because they had seen Jesus in action. All because this church served. 
Mark 10.45 gives us the exemplar of servanthood. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That verse is really the focal point of the Gospel of Mark. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's how our passage, verses 35 to 45, connects to what we studied before. In verse 33, Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And in verse 46, they arrive at Jericho, which is en route to Jerusalem. So you can kind of draw a line from verses 33 and 34, where Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be killed, to verse 45, the Son of Man will give his life a ransom for many. See, all of this is just interwoven very, very tightly. But today's passage is about what happens in between. It's, it's, it's a tale of spiritual denseness, of ambition, of, of greed, of self-centeredness. It's a story that exposes all of us, not just the 12, as in desperate need of the one who will give his life a ransom for many. Now, as, as I said, you are a generous church with your time, your talent, and your treasure. But we all need a tune-up. We're all sinners. And maybe the Lord is speaking to you today about something that you're holding on to as my rights. Maybe there's something that you need to hear from this today. If you like outlines, here's one. Verses 35 to 40 are questions and answers. Questions and answers. And then verses 41 to 45 are the principle of greatness. The principle of greatness. That's how the, the passage unfolds. Have any of you ever seen, there's an old cartoon, I've seen it in a lot of different places, a cartoon of a boy and his dog with speech balloons of what the boy says and a thought balloon of what the dog hears. Have you seen that, that cartoon? What the boy says is something like, come here midnight, I'm going to teach you a new trick. And then over here in this other balloon, what the dog hears is blah, blah, midnight, blah, 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 blah. Okay? Well, I, I, every time I see something like I, what I see in this passage, I, what Jesus says is in verses 33 and 34, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. That's what Jesus said. What the disciples hear is, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Blah, 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 blah. They, they just don't get it. This is the third time, at least it, it kind of feels that way to me. This is, the third, this is the third time Jesus has told them about his death, but they're not hearing it. Now remember... Many people did expect that Jesus, if he were indeed the Messiah, would be was the one to overthrow Rome and restore Israel and the throne of David. And the disciples, time and time again, observed Jesus as he ignored that and as he ignored their expectations or challenged those expectations. But now, now, Jesus said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, blah, 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 blah. So... Jesus is going to do it now. Now's the time. We're going to overthrow Rome. And when he does, we kind of like to be first in line. 
in a place of prominence. By the way, this is one of those stories that never would have been written in the Bible if it had been written by man to make us look good, right? Exalting the leaders of the early church? I don't think so. So I, I, I said that we, we begin with questions and answers. The first question is in verses 35 to 37 where James and John ask Jesus. And by the way, Matthew's gospel fills us in on a little bit more, tells us that the mother of James and John is behind this and put them up to it. Look at verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to, up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. This is the, the way a child challenges their parents when they're really not sure if they have a right to receive what they're about to ask for. Daddy, just promise. Just Have any of you ever done that when you were children? You are so pure. I did. Didn't work then either. Basically, they're saying, Jesus, uh, please, you just sign a blank check and we will fill in the amount. Now, maybe in some stretch of thinking, maybe, I don't, I don't see it, but they're thinking in terms of kingship. Isn't this the way that kings act? They bestow things on their faithful followers. Uh, remember what the king of Persia said to his wife, Esther? Up to half of my kingdom, I'll give to you. And back in chapter 6, remember what um, uh, Herod promised his uh, dancing stepdaughter. Ask whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom. And Herod's self-inflicted stupidity resulted in the murder of John the Baptist. Herod put himself on the spot when he did that. And James and John are kind of asking Jesus to put himself on the spot. Um, just as kind of an aside... Later on, John learned how to approach Jesus in prayer. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Prayer is not a blank check demanding an answer, but yielding your will to God's will. Remember the Lord's prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But for now, this is a question that James and John have asked Jesus, the sons of thunder. And Jesus is having none of it. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Not going to promise. You're going to have to be specific. Verse 37, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on the left. And notice this phrase, in your glory. If you want to be cynical about it, James and John are conceding two points. First of all, Jesus gets to be in the middle. And secondly, that Jesus is the one who gets to pick who's on the right and who's on the left. We'll, we'll grant you that, that kind of thing. Gracious of them, very, very gracious. Now, now, I want you to notice that they are not asking to be on either side of the cross. In the place of the two thieves. Rather, in your glory. That's what they are envisioning, not the cross. And I can sort of understand what they're thinking because they were two of the three disciples who witnessed his transfiguration glory. So certainly we're kind of favored already, right? Maybe they were thinking that way. 
The good news is that there is a kind of faith here. They do believe important things about Jesus, but the bad news is their heart does not beat with the heart of Jesus. They want prominence. Maybe they want preeminence over their peers. John Calvin put it well, they are not satisfied with Jesus alone. They are not satisfied with Jesus alone. They are not thinking about what Jerusalem is going to mean for Jesus. They're thinking about what Jerusalem is going to mean for them, what it could mean. Well, the first question is James and John asked Jesus in verses 35 to 37. The second question is Jesus asked James and John in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. And he, and he could have stopped right there and said, I'm done with you. Get out of here. But he doesn't. He's gentle. He's patient. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Remember back in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If you're going to follow me, you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Before glory... There will be Gethsemane, and then there will be Golgotha, and after that, the glory. And Jesus uses two analogies here, two pictures, word pictures, the cup and baptism. I wonder if those two elements are going to have anything to do with the future body of Christ that he is going to establish, the cup and the baptism. The Old Testament pictures God's wrath as a cup that is consumed but consumes itself, consumes the consumer. It's the pouring out of God's wrath in suffering. Isaiah 51 is one example. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained unto its dregs. Jesus will shortly drink that cup, taking into himself God's wrath, Mark 14, same book, a few chapters ahead from today. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now the disciples will never drink the same atoning cup, making the payment for sins. But they will endure sufferings for Jesus' sake. Now that's the cup. What about baptism? Baptism actually refers to Jesus' death and burial and, and, and the way that it was used later in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So the cup and baptism refer to suffering and death. And those are the two symbols that Jesus redeemed and infused with new meaning after the cross. And now baptism pictures our identity with Christ and with one another. And the cup symbolizes our unity with one another and with Jesus at the Lord's table until he comes. I, I love it that these two symbols are now a part of the ongoing life of the church. The two questions that have been asked are answered in reverse order. First of all, in verse 39, Jesus is going to answer the second question. And the answer, the answer to the question is, yes, you will drink that cup. I'm sorry, they answered to him, yes, we are able to drink that cup. Verse 39, we are able. Now, what if they had said in response to these pictures of suffering, 
No, we think not. I wonder what Jesus would have said in response. And I have to be honest with you, I'm not sure entirely how to interpret their answer. Are they speaking out of bravado? Oh, sure. Yeah, we could do that. Well, we could do it on Tuesday. We'll be fine. Or are they rethinking in light of the images that Jesus has just given them, the cup and the baptism of suffering, are they answering with a response that's more sober um, and, 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 and saying out of loyalty, yes, this is how we hope we will act. Uh, Jesus doesn't rebuke their answer. Whatever, for whatever reason, they do respond, we are able Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. You shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. James will become the first martyr from among the 12 apostles. John will become the last one. These two brothers will bookend the apostles. Let's back up to the, Jesus' answer to the first question in verse 40. But to sit on my Right or on my left, this is not mine to give. The Son defers to the Father. It is for those for whom it has been prepared, and we are not told who they are who will fill them. So any speculation is uh, probably wrong, because anybody that you think you know fits that bill uh, probably doesn't. Because he's about to describe what servanthood really is. And servanthood is anonymous. It's not announced. People don't stand up and say, excuse me, excuse me, can I have your attention, please? I'm now going to be a servant. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't necessarily accord with positions of visibility in the body of Christ. When we see who is sitting there, we will say, who are they? We, uh, I have a few candidates in my mind from my life experience, and I bet you could nominate a few as well. There's a good bit of teaching in the Bible. There's, a, in fact, quite a bit of teaching in the Bible about rewards in heaven, not just these two positions, but other rewards as well that may be ours as a part of our faithfulness and our obedience. And let me, that's not what we're looking at today, but let me commend to you the study of 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. Just take a look at those chapters and you can see as well as some of the parables of Jesus about the rewards that are ours in following him. But the point that Jesus would make about servanthood is that you cannot strive for any rewards without counting the cost of discipleship, without committing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, we said that verses 35 to 40 are about questions and answers. Now we move into the second part of the passage. Look at verses 41 and following. Verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant. Now, notice they get word of this and immediately have this visceral reaction, and Jesus preemptively jumps in before this becomes a big thing. 
And you'll notice also the word indignant. Do you remember a few weeks ago we looked at when we said that there are three times in the Gospel of Mark where this word indignant occurs. One of them is later in the book, but here uh, in chapter 10, there are two of those occurrences. The other time was when Jesus was the one who became indignant. Do you remember why Jesus became indignant? This is the audience response part of the sermon. Why did Jesus become indignant? Yeah, the disciples were preventing the children access to Jesus, and Jesus became indignant. And we said at that time, what makes you mad exposes where your heart is. And here, oh, what makes you mad exposes where your heart is. Why were they indignant? Because I think the fact that James and John asked those questions exposes two things. If James and John were promoting themselves, that's in kind of a way it's demoting the other ten. There, at least there, there's a wedge in the band of brothers, right? I think we can say that with certainty. But it also, I think, follows that those who were part of the ten, the other ten disciples, wanted to be in positions of prominence too. Because otherwise they would just let it go, right? Does that make sense? I think it may well be their resentment that James and John had the gall to ask first. So instead of giving up on them all, Jesus steps into that breach, loves on them, and uses this as a teachable moment to disciple the disciples yet again. This time about what true greatness means. Now, earlier in chapter 9, verse 35, I'll just read it to you. Jesus said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. This time he repeats that, but adds a lot more. Verse 42, calling them to himself. That's not the two, that's not the ten, that's all twelve. He said, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Now that's kind of axiomatic. Rulers rule over their subjects. In ordinary life, people try to get to the top, and after they do, they want others to feel the weight of their authority and position. That's how the world operates. Don't expect the world not to be the world. Months ago, I told you about a friend of mine who was a career military. Um, and before he became a Christian in the military, he was saved through the Officers Christian Fellowship, the group that Betsy and I are involved with. Before he was saved, uh, he was known by his fellow officers to be a great guy, just a great guy. But he told me that he helped his fellow officers enlarge their vices so that they would ruin their careers. Because that would shrink the pool for promotion. Like one example he gave me was giving a fellow captain uh, his own alcohol consumption at a party, a, a ration at a party, so that the guy would make a pass at the commander's wife. And he did. Don't expect the world not to be the world. That's how the world sometimes works. In the worst case, 
situation. But here Jesus takes the term great and redefines it. Redefines what it means in God's dictionary. Verse 43, but it is not, not this way among you. Are you ready for the principle? This is the only place in the Bible where greatness is defined. This is it, the definition of greatness. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And he uses the word servant, from which we get our word deacon, a serving office. And he uses the word slave, which is the word house slave. So the, the Greek terms for serving are, are all added, are added together here. And I, I think that we can agree that slave of all is not a job description that most of us would try to pursue. What do you want to be? I want to be a slave of all. What are you majoring in in college? I'm majoring in leadership. I've never heard anybody say I'm majoring in servanthood. Uh, one, the, the idea here to be a servant is to yield your rights to the will of your master. And, and it's a paradox. The way to greatness is the opposite of how the world operates. The way up is down. One scholar said it very well. The world's idea of greatness is inverted, turned upside down. The pyramid rests on the apex. The great man does not sit atop the lesser men, but the great man bears the lesser men on his back. The way up is down. Now, it's obvious that the immediate application of this text is spiritual leadership, right? I mean, we're, Jesus is, it's Jesus. <laughs> and he's talking to the 12. Uh, Jesus is using his own spiritual leadership as an illustration. One person said, <clears throat> he said, well, show me a church that is not led by servants, and I'll show you a church that's not serving. This holds true, I think, at all levels it holds true even in the military here's the passage that my i'm just going to read it to you uh, that my military friends talk about from time to time this is when after solomon died rehoboam became the king listen to this the people come to him representing uh, those who are involved in building the palace and the temple they say to him your father solomon made our yoke hard now, that, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. It's not unreasonable because those building projects were done now. He said, depart from me, I'll consider it. Then he consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon. How would you counsel me to answer this people? They spoke to him. Listen to this. If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. The younger men counseled him. <laughs> you tell them, get out of here. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's what he did. He followed the younger men in their counsel. And as a result, the kingdom split into two kingdoms. 
And now you have the kingdom of Judah and you have the kingdom of Israel and civil war and strife for hundreds of years after that. The advice that he received was servant leadership. This is true at all levels. And I've used this illustration before, but uh, an extreme example, I think, is if you picture a a missionary in Africa who is serving in a place of poverty with people who don't understand why he's there and they are suspicious of him, but his life goal is to love people around him with the love of Jesus and to live out the gospel and share that with them. That is his life's goal. But picture another missionary in identical circumstances whose life goal is to put in his 15 years on this assignment, use it as a stepping stone to higher visibility within the missions agency so that one day I'm going to be president over this whole ministry, going to travel, going to be publicly praised and known as a person of importance. You see the difference? They may look the same on the outside, but God knows the difference on the inside. James and John were asking for positions of visibility and honor, but they had serious lessons to learn. Their minds needed to be renewed. Their minds needed to be transformed into the image of Christ. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who sets the pattern of servanthood? Jesus does. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Son of man was one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself. Used 14 times in the Gospel of Mark alone that Jesus uses it of himself. And the term connects Jesus with humanity. Uh, But it's an Old Testament term. As you look through just a few examples in Mark, in chapter 2, the Son of man has the authority to forgive sin. The Son of Man has the, is the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark 8, the Son of Man is the access point to entrance into the kingdom of God. In Mark 9, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, killed, and rise again. That's that repeated theme. In Mark 10, the Son of Man will be betrayed from the, that is from the inside, be, be betrayed from within his group to the chief priests who will then deliver him to the Gentiles and they will kill me which is more more specific about how it's going to happen. And now here in verse 35, I did not come, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And looking ahead, this verse thir- chapter 13, the Son of Man, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And he quotes from Daniel chapter 7. What does Daniel chapter 7 have to do with that? And there are others as well. The reason why Jesus consistently uses this term, it's a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. Listen to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him, there was given to the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages shall serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. 
And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you see and hear the words that echo the population of heaven as it's described from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It's, the point is, <clears throat> all nations, all peoples, all languages. Jesus loved this title because it was universal. It's not just a Jewish title, not just Messiah, but the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come. So, the fact that this embraced salvation for all people is echoed throughout the New Testament. And in Romans 3.23, we read that all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. Falling short of what? The glory of God. Lord, when you enter into your glory, mm, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So sin costs a life. And God himself provided that life. Remember in Genesis 22, Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac. God provided an object lesson of substitutionary death with the curious wording, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then you see in Isaiah 53, all the way through, verse by verse, every phrase describes Jesus as the Messiah who will come about eight centuries later. Phrase by phrase, word by word, there he is. So that later, Ethiopian eunuch on the way back to Ethiopia says, up here, <laughs> the Ethiopian eunuch uh, is, asks Philip, of whom is Isaiah speaking? Is he speaking of himself or someone else? And Philip, beginning with that text, started, but beginning, not stopping, beginning at that text, preached Jesus unto him. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John 10. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. An infinite payment was made, not just to cover our debt, but to shatter any attempt at saying there is an equivalency here. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. The word ransom is often used of money paid for the release <clears throat> of a slave. Before salvation, we are called slaves to sin, but we are bought with a price by one who paid the ransom for many. <laughs> you see how it all fits together. You don't belong you Jesus paid it all all to him I owe I'm going to make some closing remarks in our passage Jesus does not discourage pursuing greatness right he encourages it but he redefines it greatness is servanthood the way up is down in God's kingdom, servanthood is supposed to be the rule, not the exception. Because this is what God is like. Jesus does not exempt himself from servanthood. He defines it. Shortly after this, the disciples were enter Jerusalem and go to an upper room where Jesus will be the one who washes the disciples' feet including 
a guy named Judas. Now, Christmas is coming. You may have noticed that early uh, from our, uh, our service thus far. And I want to read to you, very briefly, the Christmas story. I'm going to read about four verses of the Christmas story. Um, not the one you're thinking of. I'm going to read the one from Philippians chapter 2. Just listen up. Have this attitude, this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. For Jesus, equality with God means not getting, but giving. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a, it doesn't say of a man, taking the form of a bondservant, a servant. Being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the incarnation. That's what it was about. Jesus was not humbled. He humbled himself. Where was Jesus born? Was he born in the royal wing of the Jerusalem hospital? Was he born in the palace? And to whom was Jesus born? Was he born to people of high standing, high status socially? Remember the assumption of the Magi from the east? They showed up in Jerusalem, the capital city where the palace was, with the question, where is he that is born? King of the Jews. His incarnation, incarnated servanthood. From birth in a stable to death on a cross, the way up is down. That's why the Apostle Paul refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ 13 times in his 13 epistles. I'm a bondslave of Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus, then that should affect every allegiance that you hold. Servanthood does not, what it means is that we yield our rights to our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just be clear about this. We're not yielding our rights to the person in front of us that we're serving. They're not our master. We're yielding our rights to Jesus as we serve them. And when, when you are the one who is in a position of authority because of the circumstances of your life or your work, whether maybe you're in the military or you're in a business where you have authority, what this looks like for you is not leading in a way that puts your foot on the neck of those who are below you, but rather helping them to become their best and to succeed and to grow. And doing that in love and with kindness and in truth. Think about this. If you're a servant, in terms of personal relationships, you yield up your right to the Lord. <laughs> it's not easy. You yield up your right to be appreciated. You yield up your right even to be known or acknowledged for what you do or to have the last word, or to demand that the other person admit that they are wrong, which we know they should. 
or to say that I don't have the time, I really can't be bothered right now, or to insist that my relationship with you is 50-50. If you don't keep up your half, I'm not going to invest mine. You even give up the right to have others know that you have served because you didn't do it to be seen of men, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. One person put it well, the test of servanthood is how you respond when you're treated like one. As servants of Jesus, and I think this is very important, we behave better than we feel. What if we don't feel like serving? If you wait until you feel like being a servant, that's just not going to happen. Okay? Disciples are called to deny ourselves and to obey truth before we feel it. (laughs) And that is especially true in marriage. It's true in family relationships. It's true in the church as you practice the one another's. Here's a case in point. This is a story written by a man in a Christian nonprofit. It was, I clipped this 23 years ago and I kept it. It had been a hard week at our Love and Action office. At 5 o'clock on a Friday, I was looking forward to having a quiet dinner with my friends. Then the phone rang. Jeff, it's Jimmy, I heard a quavering voice say. Jimmy, who suffered from several AIDS-related illnesses, was one of our regular clients. I'm really sick, Jeff. I've got a fever. Please help me. I was angry. After a 60-hour work week, I didn't want to hear about Jimmy. But I promised to be right over. Still, during the drive, I complained to God about the inconvenience. The moment I walked in the door, I could smell the vomit. Jimmy was on the sofa, shivering and in distress. I wiped his forehead and got a bucket of soapy water to clean up the mess. I managed to maintain a facade of concern, even though I was raging inside. Jimmy's friend, Russ who also had AIDS, came down the stairs. The odor made Russ sick, too. He vomited. As I cleaned the carpet around Russ's chair, I was ready to explode inside. Then Russ startled me. I understand. I understand. What, Russ? Jimmy asked weakly. I understand who Jesus is, Russ said through his tears. He's like Jeff. Weeping, I hugged Russ and prayed with him. That night, Russ trusted Christ Jesus as his Savior, a God who had used me to show his love in spite of myself. We act like servants whether or not we feel like it. And Jesus honors that submission. That's what denying myself looks like. Now, the story I just read to you describes responsibilities that most of us do not encounter in our ordinary lives. But we have a lot of things that are ordinary that need to come under the umbrella of Jesus' authority as we serve him. Whatever your ordinary is, it is indeed filled with opportunities for greatness through serving. And it will change your life. It will change your friendships. It will change your marriage. It will change your relationships with believers and with unbelievers 
No one should leave here today saying, thank you, Gary. I agree, they needed that. <laughs> or my wife needed that. Or my child or my father. This is not about them. It's about me. It's about you. It's about the person you see in the mirror. What does serving other believers look like? Well, baseline, it's the one another's of the Bible. It's giving your brother or your sister against whom you have a little peeve. It's, uh, it's giving them a best case interpretation. It's treating them with kindness. Same, what does serving unbelievers like, look like? Same thing. Treating them with kindness, loving them with the truth of the gospel. So that while the world says, you do you, Scripture says, you don't belong to you. <laughs> you are not your own. You've been bought with a price by the one who gave his life a ransom for many. So have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that it places before us of having of being vessels for you to love other people through us. But Lord, what a blessing it is to be that vessel. Lord, I pray that if there are areas in our lives that we need to be made more aware of, that we need to have you call to our attention, that your spirit would do that. Areas where we need to act more like followers of Jesus, to be servants to one another. Father, I pray that your spirit would do your work in applying your truth to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.